Well, it's the last Sunday of the year. What a year. I'm just tired thinking about it. Probably you too. Um, what if this year were a movie and uh, we got a movie review of 2020? Well, some familiar faces, probably to a couple of us who are a bit older, David and Margaret, who used to review movies on SBS, um, they have a review of 2020. Have a look at that. The premise for 2020, the hotly anticipated sequel to 2019, is simple enough. An aging despot with deteriorating mental health refuses to engage with a global pandemic and overboiling racial tensions, while people around the world are forced to stay home to watch a documentary on big cat game parks. In another director's hands, perhaps it could have worked, but unfortunately, 2020 is a disappointing failure. Firstly, it's difficult to work out what 2020 actually is. A sci-fi, a disaster epic, a political drama, some sort of dark comedy? It's hard to tell. We see bushfires, floods, plagues and dust storms, and that's just in the opening credits. From there, we're pinballed between a global pandemic, an economic crisis, a once-in-a-generation reassessment of racial equality, and an eight-part series on basketballer Michael Jordan. It's as if no one could agree on what to take out, so they just put in everything and hope for the best. Christopher Nolan's Tenant was easier to follow, and that's saying something. There are plot holes and inconsistencies throughout. In one scene, the US president says the pandemic is a hoax. Only minutes later, he claims his country is dealing with it better than any other nation. He then contracts the virus himself. It's simply not believable. There are moments of comic relief. A billionaire inventor names his child after a piece of programming code. A columnist for the Australian newspaper is awarded an Order of Australia for services to men's rights. Good Lord. But these moments of lightness are few and far between. It's only a matter of time before we're back to a new disaster. Another plague outbreak. A pedophile priest freed from prison. Nickelback's first album in more than a decade. In the end, 2020 is simply unsatisfying. Despite all of the turmoil and upheaval, nothing really changes. It's hard to think of a less enjoyable production. What do you think, Margaret? I loved it, David. Really? It was a satire, David. It's not meant to be taken seriously. I mean, didn't you love that scene where the US president suggests everyone drinks bleach? He looked pretty serious. It's not meant to be taken literally. Like when the Prince of England announces his retirement when he doesn't even have a job. Brilliant. I'm not sure. Or when the Prime Minister of Australia announces that everybody has to stay at home under all circumstances and then announces 384 specific exemptions. I mean, that's so droll. I thought that was originally a Monty Python sketch. It was. And what about the leader of North Korea dying four times? It was a metaphor. Or when a woman goes into that hardware store and quotes the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights. I mean, what was that all about? Yeah, I must admit I thought that was deeply odd. But, you know, I loved 2020. I thought it was ridiculous, uh, satirical, vastly entertaining, absolutely hilarious. I thought it was horrible. Oh, I'm giving it five stars. I'm giving it zero. Well, how do you look back on a year like 2020? How does it make you feel? And I guess even more importantly for us uh, before the new year, how, how, do you, how do you face 2021 when still so much is uncertain? 
Uh, that psalm that we read out, only three verses. It's probably one of the shortest psalms in the Bible. Could be the shortest, in fact. Um, did you pay attention to it when, uh, when Hamish read it out? Isn't it an enviable picture of absolute serenity? Someone who is able to face life with peace and with quiet, Someone who can only face life because they know God and are known by God. So we're going to spend some time in that psalm again. Let me just read those verses out again. Um, you can follow on the digital outlines or just in your Bibles. So it's a song of a sense of David. And listen to these words. Just picture this serenity. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Is this something that you want in life? Let's pray and ask God to give it to us. Father, we pray that as we open your word, this picture of serenity of this weaned child with its mother, of being content and quieted and at peace in the midst of such turmoil, Lord, we long for this, so show us today through your word how we may have it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I've got uh, three points. Uh, serenity. We get a picture of serenity, as I said. Um, and it says there in verse 1, my heart is not proud, my eyes are not haughty. Um, the, the, literally, it's, it's my, uh, my heart is not raised high and my heart and my eyes are not lifted up. Okay, both words have this idea of being raised high or lifted up, which kind of gets us to understand what it means to be proud or haughty. I mean, haughty is especially not a word we use much. What does it mean to be proud or haughty? And, and often when we hear that, we want to think of the extreme example, right? We want to think of the arrogant, narcissist, certain American president type person, right? Um, and the danger of that is we then look at others and we don't think it's us. But I actually think once you understand the idea of being proud and haughty is having your eyes and your heart lifted or raised high, it gives us a sense in which how the average person, people like you and me, might actually be proud. So there's two ways I think we see it. Firstly, is we think that everything concerns me. You got that? When your eyes are lifted high, your heart is lifted up, you think everything concerns you. And then secondly, you think that everything is about you, right? Everything concerns you, everything is about you. Let me, let me flesh it out. Everything concerns me is when I kind of think that I am more important, more able, more responsible, I am more needed than I actually am. You get what I mean? That way, when, when your eyes and hearts are lifted higher, you think, I need to take that kind of drone footage view of the world, and the world needs me, I have so many responsibilities, I'm really needed. Now the result of this is, of course, you feel a need to be involved and worry about and have your fingers into every pie. Things that have nothing to do with you aren't your concern or responsibility. You still feel like you need to have an eye over. Uh, and you see that lots on social media, don't you? Social media is probably the worst way in which it feeds this in all of us. Yeah, the, the, the fact that we think looking at someone's feed or Twitter or something, we feel like we have to care about it. We have to comment on it. We have to write something. We have to have an opinion on everything. We have to have all the news, all the gossip about everything. That's what it's talking about. All right? Everything concerns me. 
Now, people like this, you also find it hard to let go because everything seems to be your responsibility. A little bit more of an extreme example of this uh, is, um, uh, do I have a picture? Is what we call helicopter parenting. Head of helicopter parenting. All right, so this is uh, from someone's Facebook messenger, obviously, and, and this person's mum has just given her um, a blanket and then messaged her daughter to say, just make sure that there are no loose strings or thread hanging on the yellow blanket that might catch your little toe or big at night, and that will cause gangrene and could cause death. Just check, a baby infant had gangrene just from the baby's socks with loose threads inside the sock and strings wrapped around the baby's toes and it caused gangrene and died. I panicked one night. All right, this is called helicopter parenting. When you feel like everything, I've got to watch over everything. And by the way, this daughter was um, an adult having their Asian mum look after everything to the extent that she's worrying about causing gangrene on a perfectly new blanket that she'd just given her daughter. Now, if this is you, not necessarily this extreme, but if this is you, that everything concerns you and you feel like you're responsible and you need to be in control of everything, it's tiring, isn't it? And you know who you are. It's tiring living like that. And you're anxious and you're worried about almost everything in life because everything concerns you. Well, that's the first one. The second way in which our eyes and our hearts may be lifted up or proud is we think that everything is about me. Now, there's a, you know, obviously an extreme example of that, the narcissist, as I says, but there's also subtle but natural ways in which we all do this to a certain extent. And that is, we actually value and prioritize our happiness. My own happiness is at the center of all my relationships, okay? Everything is about me. Everything, in a sense, serves me. And there's something that is almost instinctive about that, right? We're just generally selfish people. Now, the result of this is that others, and by the way, including God, others, including God, therefore become a means to an end. They become the vehicle by which I get my happiness, so even sometimes the selfless things, what seems to be selfless things that I do, and parents, you can relate to this, can't you? Right? Parenting is about the most selfless thing you can do, but you do find yourself tied to your kids in, in a way that actually feeds your own happiness and sense of worth and fulfillment, right? And it does matter to us parents, more than we like to admit, how your kids turn out because it reflects well or badly on you or your ambitions become lived out in them. Do you see everything is about me? And, and, and if this is you, and it's, it's me to a very big extent, um, it's very easy to have what's called a transactional view of people. A transactional view of people is if you do something good for someone, and that could include God, there's something that you're getting back out of it. You got that? It's a transaction. You give, you get. Also, if, some, if someone or some, someone, including God, does something nice to you, you're always asking the question, do they want something in return? Now, if this is you, it's also very tiring, right? A person like this will never experience serenity either because you're constantly thinking about yourself, your happiness. And even if you're not explicitly thinking about it, your relationships are so transactional, you're always worrying and we're feeling bad because someone's done something nice to me. I feel like I owe them. Or have I paid this person back? Or if I've done something good for this person, why am I not getting anything out of it? And that reflects your relationship with God. All right? There are just a couple of ways, you see, where this idea of being proud or haughty as eyes lifted high or hearts lifted high is actually the opposite of serenity. 
And so look again. Look again at what uh, Psalm 131 pictures as serenity. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. See, the opposite is this image of a weaned child. Now, what's a weaned child? A, a weaned child is a, a, is a baby or an infant that no longer is breastfed. Okay, they're, they're on solid food. They don't need breastfeeding anymore. They're weaned. But they're still a child. But there's something beautiful about this picture of a weaned child in the arms of his or her mother. Because before they're weaned... They're always desperate for milk, right? Even when they're not hungry, right? Those of you who are parents or grandparents, you'll know that, um, you know, mom cradles a child uh, who's still breastfeeding and the child's always looking for food, uh, always wanting something. But this is a picture of a weaned child, a child who's no longer that kind of breastfeeding baby stage, who's just, just content and happy to be in her arms, not wanting anything from mum. And if you've ever held a baby like that, and you don't have to be a mum or a grandparent, and, and the baby just looks at you and then just slowly drifts off to sleep, content, peaceful, that's the picture there. They don't want anything from you. They're a child, they're, they're limited, they're humble, but they're perfectly resting and trusting and perfectly at peace. That is the picture. Okay, so that is the, the, the what of, of the serenity. of, And this is really it. This is Psalm 131. But we need to ask the question, of course, how, don't we? Right? How can we, after a year like 2020, in the face of another year of uncertainty, how can we experience this? How can we have an attitude to life like this weaned child? Well, let me give you a bit of context. This is a short psalm, but it comes as a group of psalms. And believe it or not, the psalms aren't just thrown together randomly. They're actually arranged. And this is part of a group of psalms known as Psalms of Ascent. And you'll read that from the first bit before verse 1. Uh, it's called Psalm of Ascent possibly because it's uh, used for pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, in their annual trip up towards Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is on a slight hill, so it's an ascent going up. More importantly, though, is Psalm 131 doesn't really stand on its own, in that if you look carefully, it's linked to both a psalm before it and the psalm after it. And so if you've got the digital outlines, you'll notice I printed out, uh, I've also got there Psalm 130 and Psalm 132. Now, the link with the psalm before it, Psalm 130, is the link of hope, in that you've got this phrase in 131, remember, it ends with, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. But now look at Psalm 130, the psalm just before it. Let me read it out. We'll read the whole psalm. It's not a long one. A psalm of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. And here it is. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. Word for word, the same as Psalm 131, right? For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. 
I don't have time to go through this psalm in detail, but you get the point, right? This is a psalm in the midst of despair. And if you felt anything like this in 2020, you're not alone. But what's the solution to despair in Psalm 130? It's waiting. Waiting on God to do what He promised, to redeem from sin especially. It starts out with, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, but with you there is forgiveness. And the reason why I mentioned sin in the midst of circumstances of life and despair is because in the Bible's view, sin is actually our greatest problem, isn't it? Living alienated and cut off from relationship with God is why the world is ruined the way it is. Why there are pandemics and plagues and bushfires and natural disasters and murder and racial inequality. All of this is because we live in a world full of sin. And we are people with sin, needing forgiveness, facing His judgment. That's our biggest problem, you see. Right? And this solution in Psalm 130 is that waiting on God to bring about His promise of forgiveness and redemption. There's the solution. So that's Psalm 130, the one before it. Look how it links then to Psalm 132, the one after it. The link to 132 is actually to David, not King David. You remember Psalm 131 says it's a, it's a Psalm of David. Now Psalm 132, as you read it, it's very obviously a Psalm about David. David gets mentioned in the first verse. You're going to have to click this for me because it's not working. Okay. You see what it says? A song of ascents. Lord, remember David. There's the link to Psalm 131. Remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will not allow sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, you read that and the first impression is, hang on, this seems to be the opposite of the picture of David in Psalm 131. So we think that David wrote Psalm 131. Psalm 132, he probably didn't write. It's actually about David. But this picture of David in 132, well, he's not at rest, is he? Right? He's, it's not, he's actually very active. He's very determined. He's motivated. He wants to do this big project, and so he needs to get busy. He needs to build, and we know from the Bible, he wants to build a big temple for the Lord. So is this a contradiction? Well, you read on, and you see that this rest of this psalm, 132, actually shifts focus. You keep reading, and it's not actually about David building a house for God. I mean, he wanted to, but it's not actually going to be him who builds the temple. Eventually, we know that it's his son Solomon who does it. And read on from the psalm. It's not actually about David building God a house. It's actually about God building a house for David. Only house there is metaphorical, not literal, but a house as in the, in the Old Testament Hebrew, house can also mean your family, right? Your household, your descendants, a line of Messiah kings that would come from David. David wanted to build God a house, as in a temple. God says, no, 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 I'm going to build you a house, as in a household. Now, why is that important? Well, that's important because it's a reflection on 
this psalm is a reflection on the events of 2 Samuel 7. We won't look it up, but 2 Samuel 7 is one of those key turning points in the Old Testament where David says to God, Lord, I want to build you a great temple, a house. But God says, no, 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 I'm actually going to build you a house. And he makes a covenant, a set of unbreakable promises that David and his descendants would rule forever. And so the rest of Psalm 132 is actually about God being the active one. David starts off, you know, wanting to do all this. The psalm ends with, actually, God is going to do all this stuff. So um, just a few verses on. Uh, Look at verse 11. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion, which is Jerusalem. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. All right, who becomes the agent, the actor, the person who does everything towards the end of the psalm? It's the Lord, because it's the Lord who will fulfill David's desire. He is the active one. And so David, with all of his grand plans and desires, what can David do in light of the Lord's promises? David can what? Rest. You see? David can be serene. David can quiet himself like a weaned child if he trusts in God to fulfill his promises. So you take Psalm 131 and you see Psalm 130 and Psalm 132 on either side of it, you see how it actually tells us how to have this childlike serenity. Yeah? They're almost like, you know, the, 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 the bread of the sandwich and Psalm 131 is the meat of the sandwich. How do you get this childlike serenity in life? Well, you rest, trusting in God and what He's promised to do. You got that? You rest, trusting in God and what He's promised to do. In Psalm 130, it's that He would rescue His people from His sins. And He would do that ultimately, of course, through David's son. Down a few generations, the Messiah, Jesus. You see, it's the Messiah, Jesus, the King, who would bring God's temple presence to the world and His people forever. When Psalm 132 talks about God building a house for David and God fulfilling even the idea of a temple, we find out in the New Testament it's because Jesus is that temple. It's no longer a physical place, but in a person. Jesus, David's son, the Messiah King, who we celebrated at Christmas would be the very presence temple of God. See, what God has done for us through Jesus is the reason that we, especially on this side of the New Testament, can rest like a weaned child in the arms of God our Father. And it's especially when we understand that how God saves us is by grace through faith. Right? Grace undeserved generosity that you can't earn through faith. And of course, Ephesians 2 puts it best. Have a look there. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith just means trust or dependence and reliance. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, which means it's free. It's not by work so that no one can boast. Now, if you and I understand that, and I know if you're a follower of Jesus, you think, of course I understand that. No, but if we really live that out, every day, 
God guarantees us that we will have a peace that passes even understanding. I saw it in my friend who passed away a couple of months ago, only age 49. Right before he passed away, a few months earlier, him and his, him and his wife managed to, to get onto one of the online uh, stream Zoom um, Christianity Explored courses. They both became Christians. And it was amazing at his funeral to hear his wife get up and talk about just how peaceful he was in the face of death. Now, a lot of that had to do with his personality. He's, he's, he's really just a, a really chilled guy, uh, even in the midst of suffering. But she was very clear to say that the gr- understanding God's grace to them in Jesus was a big reason why they could face death with no fear, no worry, no anxiety and certainty. Because there was a point in which, you know, as he began to explore Christianity when he was getting treated for cancer and, and, and uh, it wasn't looking good, that, that he said to, to the minister that was helping him along, he said, but I feel like, you know, I've, I've wasted a whole, my whole life and, and now I just want I, I want to be saved just as a sort of a, a Hail Mary pass right at the end of my life. Um, he doesn't feel like he's worthy of that. He doesn't feel like, you know, God should, do, God should accept him. And it was at that point that the guy who was helping to lead them to Jesus explained grace. This verse, Ephesians 2. And understanding that God doesn't accept us based on our good works, doesn't accept us because we've been good or religious or moral. He accepts us because Jesus already paid everything and did everything so that we could be in relationship with God. That blew his mind. He knew at that point that he didn't have to earn it. He knew at that point it's never too late. He knew at that point that he, with all of his regrets, can actually face God with no regrets because of grace. You see how grace changes you. You see, you understand grace, then you can admit that you are needy. It's the opposite of having your eyes lifted high. If you understand grace, that God doesn't save you by what you do, but he saves you simply because Jesus has done it all, you then have to admit, I need Jesus at the point of my life where I have no control over, which is my sin, my salvation. I can't do anything about that. God will give me grace. But it means you've got to firstly lower yourself and say, God, I need you. You see, it's the opposite of having your heart lifted up. And grace means this, relationship with God is not transactional, is it? God doesn't want something from you. It's not conditional. I'll give you grace if you do this. No, he doesn't want something from you. He just wants you. And the result of understanding grace is you don't want something from God either, You just want God. Now, I wonder if your relationship with God, if you're a follower of Jesus, is like that. Do you want something from God or do you just want God? You get an illustration of the difference in Luke chapter 10, which we don't have time to look at. But if you know the story of Jesus with Mary and Martha, two sisters, one had a very works-based transactional view of relationship with Jesus. The other one is like a weaned child content to sit at the feet of Jesus. She doesn't want something from Jesus. She just wants more of Jesus. All right? Read it in Luke chapter 10 later on. So, how do you get serenity? That's how. My final point, 
put your hope in the Lord. That's how this psalm finishes, right? You've got to put your hope in the Lord. That's what it means. You get content, you're at rest, you're satisfied to be in relationship with God, not ultimately because of what He can give you, but ultimately for Him. Now, there's a book that um, is written by Vanitha Risna called The Scars That Have Shaped Me. She faced, um, well, she had three miscarriages, tried for a baby for years, had three miscarriages, and then when she finally had a son, her infant son, Paul, died. Now, can you imagine the grief? Well, as a result of her grief, she wrote this book. I'm going to read a a pretty long um, uh, article that's based on this book that she wrote, because I think she got something here that I think we really need to hear, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, especially is if, if today you really, it's just tweaked in you that maybe you do have that transactional sort of view of God, or that you feel like you need to be helicoptering over things that don't concern you. You find it hard to, to, to put your trust and rest in God. Look what she says here, or listen to what she says. I assumed my prayers would be effective. I knew God was able to do even more than I had asked. And I had been faithful. I taught Bible study. I tithed. Surely God would do what I wanted. But months later, sitting beside Paul, her infant son's empty crib, I had more questions than answers. What had I done wrong? Why didn't my faithful life result in blessing? Was I to blame or was God? Nothing made sense. And in the ensuing months, I poured myself into theology. I wanted to understand this God whom I claimed to worship but couldn't figure out. While God graciously comforted me with His presence, I still had unanswered questions. As I examined my expectations, I realized that I had unconsciously assumed that life was linear. I was living as if God's blessings were dependent on my faithfulness. And as if trouble was a result of my failings. So I fulfilled my end of the relationship. God would have to fulfill His. If not, what was the point of obeying God? Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal Son, talks about this subtle but dangerous expectation. He writes, If, like the elder brother, you seek to control God through your obedience, then all your morality is just a way to use God to make Him give you the things in life you really want. She keeps writing, I am ashamed to admit how much that statement described me. My morality was little more than a way to use God to get the things in life I wanted. Prayer was essentially a good luck charm, a way of controlling my environment so I could live a happy, pain-free life. God was to be my cosmic errand boy, ready to grant my every request. This was a slanted business arrangement about me, not a covenant with Almighty God. As I searched the Bible for answers, God revealed a simple but transforming truth. This life is not about me. It's about Him. And my supreme delight is not to rest in anything in this world. My delight is to be in God. The best gift He can give me is not health or prosperity or happiness, 
but more of himself. A blessing that can never be taken away. A blessing that grows richer with time and lasts throughout eternity. And this blessing is often found in suffering. When my treasures disintegrate before me, when I live with pain and unfulfilled longings, when my dreams are shattered beyond repair, I begin to long for something more lasting. It is there that I find Jesus and realize that He is more valuable, more precious, more fulfilling than anything He can give me. He alone is the ultimate treasure. Knowing Him is worth suffering for, living for, and dying for. 